and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Uh, <clears throat> a somewhat well-known uh, pastor and author, Gordon MacDonald, shares a kind of transparent moment that he had with this passage. I think if we're all honest, we've all probably had our transparent moments with this passage, especially that second part there to, to love our neighbor as ourself. Uh, years ago, Gordon writes, he flew to Minneapolis to give a speech at a conference at the Minneapolis Convention Center. Near downtown Minneapolis, my taxi was stopped at a red light four cars back from the crosswalk. I noticed a homeless man lurching between the cars in the middle of the street. When he got to the front of my taxi, he fell and landed on his chin. I could hear the thud. His chin split open and there was blood all over the place. I got out and looked over the top of the door at this man six feet away and these thoughts went through my head. I have a brand new suit on that Gail just bought me. I can't afford to get it messed up. I have to get to the Minneapolis Convention Center to speak in 15 minutes. I'm in a strange city and I don't know what to do. I don't have any medical training. I wouldn't know how to help this guy. I wonder if underneath there wasn't a fifth thought. If you're dumb enough to get yourself drunk, why should busy people stop and help you? I'm ashamed of this. I can't believe a Bible-believing Christian could find the, those thoughts in the filing cabinets of his soul. For a few seconds, those thoughts militated against my, any movement on my part. Before I could come to better senses, other people came rushing to this man's help. And I was able to get back into my taxi and go to the convention center to speak about sensitivity and caring for the needs of other human beings. Isn't that stupid? Gordon McDonald. Well, here's the thought. Here's the beginning, I guess. We have enough. We've been talking about this for several weeks. Just going to tell you today, we have enough. We have enough. If we have Christ we have enough. He is our sufficiency. And I want you to think about it in this two ways. We have enough for the life we have to live. We have a life for the responsibilities we bear, the challenges we face, and the battles we fight. We have enough for the life that we have to live. And then, you know what? We also have enough for the life we have been called to live. And we have all been called to live a life, and we have enough to live that life. Kind of similar to last week when we talked about uh, Moses, and Moses kind of presented the idea for us that, you know, sometimes the invitation God gives us, the life we're called to live is outside of our comfort zone. Well, today I want to look at it slightly differently, although it'll probably parallel pretty nicely with that idea of a comfort zone. But it's really looking at that idea of the life that I'm called to live through those two commands. What are those two commands? Well, uh, to love God with all you've got and to love your neighbor as yourself. And I want to consider that this morning, the life we are called to live through that second command of loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the life you and me have, we've been called to live. To love our neighbor as ourselves, and we have enough to live that life. Now, here's the thing I was thinking about, the, 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 the reality of this concept of loving your neighbor. I think it comes down, there are two focuses. There are two ways to look at this command. There are two main components to it. One component is to ask, who is my neighbor? And then the second component is to ask, how do I love them? And I was thinking about that this week. I was thinking about how we tend to, I think, really do a better job with answering the first question. Well, who is my neighbor? So we'll define who is my neighbor. There's a great meme on Facebook. Pretty powerful, pretty accurate. Love your neighbor. Who doesn't? Look like you, think like you, love like you, speak like you, pray like you, vote like you. Love your neighbor. No exceptions. That's great, right? That's true. That's who my neighbor is. 
don't agree with everything about them all the time and the way they live their life, but we love our neighbor, no exceptions. Um, <clears throat> another area where you see this idea coming up of uh, loving your neighbor and who is my neighbor and defining who my neighbor is. It's the caravans. I read something the other day. One of my relatives posted something. She posts things now and then and I want to get on there. I desperately want to get on there and set her straight, you know, but I, I don't. <clears throat> but she was talking about these caravans and some of, the, some of the thinking along these caravans coming from the south is that if we love our neighbor, we're going to love all the people in those caravans and even if they break our laws and illegally break our laws, we got to let them just flood the country. Just let them come in. And is that what the Bible teaches? Well, it's interesting because the Bible doesn't tell countries or governments to love their neighbor. It tells you and me to love our neighbor. And so here's the, here's the problem with that, that whole scenario is that we often don't focus on the second half. How do I love my neighbor? What does it mean to love my neighbor? So if, if we want to advocate that all the people in the caravans just come flooding into our country, okay, here's the reality you need to sponsor one of those families. You need to take them into your home. You need to feed them. You need to help them learn English, assimilate into our culture. That's what it would mean if you really believe you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Don't just define who the neighbor is. Say, I'm gonna love them. Because letting them flood into the country and have no resources and no place to live, encouraging them to make this trek with their kids, all the, that's not loving them. It's not loving them at all. They're putting their families in danger lots of times, all the traveling they're doing. So I think we do a good job of talking, who's my neighbor, but how about, what does it mean to love my neighbor? Well, one thing it means to serve them. Jesus, he came not to be served, but to serve. So we love our neighbor by serving them. We love our neighbor by caring for them, by being as concerned for someone else as I am for myself. I get it, we're responsible for our own families, true, I'm not as responsible for your family as I am for mine. But there's this thing if, that if I care about the, the neighbor around me and I see them in trouble, I'm going to be concerned about them. So if I see them traveling in a caravan and I really am concerned about them, I'll really be concerned about helping them. Not just saying you can come in. I saw one of the memes says anybody can, can come in and live right next door to me. Well, that's great. But they got to be able to afford that house. You know, they gotta be, we got to really think about what it means to care for them. And then thirdly, loving is giving yourself to them. Giving yourself a way to love your neighbor. And we have enough to serve, to care, and to give to the neighbors all around us. I just think it's interesting that we do a good job defining who the neighbor is, but not necessarily how do we love them. And I can just tell you that we have a, a Sister Grace Church in Granville Celebration Bible Church and I just saw last week, you know what they did? They are sponsoring a refugee family. They are paying for their housing and they're feeding them and they're helping them get jobs and they're doing exactly what it means to love your neighbor. That's what it means. That's what it means. And, and you know what that really does? That takes the politics out of it because a lot of this is just politics. It takes the politics out of it and says, what does it really mean to love your neighbor? This isn't a liberal or conservative or a Democrat or Republican issue. This is a spiritual issue. What does it mean to really love my neighbor? Today, here's our big idea today. As I love my neighbor as myself, Christ in me is not just enough for me, he is more than enough for you as well. As I love my neighbor as myself, Christ in me is enough for me and my family, but it's also enough for you 
as well. I have enough to love my neighbor, I really do. And we're gonna look at a story today. The little boy who loved his neighbor so much that he gave his neighbor his lunch. And Jesus took his lunch, his, his two fishes and five loaves and multiplied it and fed about 15 to 20,000 people out in the middle of nowhere. And I want us to ask this morning, what is the real emphasis behind this story? Why did Jesus perform this miracle and how does it impact our lives today. Remember again, there is a life we have to live. We have to take care of our families. But then there is a life we are called to live, and that's to love our neighbor as ourself. And we have enough to do that very, very thing. In fact, if I were to ask you this morning, how can we define, could we define, if I said, okay, how can we define the life we're called to live? How can I put it in real simple terms? You know, it's loving my neighbor as myself, but what's a real simple way to define the life I'm called to live? Yeah, it's the Christ life. We talk about it all the time. It's the Christ life. And if I live the Christ life, I will love the Father with all I've got and I will love my neighbor as myself. I mean, I'll really love them. I won't just talk about loving them. I will really, really, really love them. So let's look at the story, Mark chapter 6. We'll read through the story here. When he went ashore, Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them to sit all, all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he defied the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up the 12 baskets full of broken pieces and a fish and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men and that plus their family so there was probably 15 to 20,000 people out here that got fed on this afternoon or this evening pretty amazing realize the story is not about just a miracle of fish and bread it goes very very much deeper and it speaks in part to the life we are called to live in christ when we come to christ we get a new life we get a new reason to live we are called to live the life where we love god and we serve others so we want to see this morning that we have more than enough to meet the demands of that mission. So embracing the Christ life today and the lessons from the feeding of the 5,000. And here's the first one. Did you know that we have enough even when we're tired? You have enough even when we're tired. Now where does that fit into this story? Well to find that you have to look at the story from the big picture and you got to go back and you got to look at the, at the verses before and the verses after what we just read. And let, me, let me read them to you because here's what happened right prior to that. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. Now, he had sent them out. He had sent them out um, to go out and, and minister. In verse 31, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. 
And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And that's where we pick up the story that Jesus saw them, had compassion, and ministered to them. Now, I want you to see this simple reality here. See, um, we have enough even when we're tired. In fact, have you ever related to this? Truth is, sometimes we are tired before we even start, before we even begin uh, some mission, some ministry, some project, and we're tired before we even start. Each gospel writer, and this, this miracle is included by all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of them point this same element of the story out, that before they even began this ministry, they were tired, they were hungry, they, they were getting away on their own to have some downtime to feed themselves. They had been doing a lot of ministry, they were worn out. And that's when Jesus, it says, has compassion on this multitude of people and he reaches out and ministers to them. The thing is, when it comes to having enough, sometimes we are tired before we even begin. We're exhausted before we even start. And yet, we can have enough. I'm reminded of the occasion, the time that the disciples and Jesus, they were kind of tired and they stopped at a well and the disciples went into town to get food and Jesus just wanted to rest and drink and there comes this woman. And he ends up in a conversation with this woman at the well. Remember how the story goes. And by the end of the story, she has basically responded to the gospel and she's gone back into town to bring the whole town in to meet the Messiah. And the disciples return with food and the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And I'm just amazed in the context here how Jesus equates the ministry and the work that we do as a kind of food that can nourish and can satisfy our soul. And it can. The reality is there is something, when it comes to loving our neighbor through ministry, there is something that is satisfying and invigorating about that. And we can't often explain it, but it's true. And if you think about your own life and your own experiences, you might remember it. Let me, let me give you a story. I kind of wrote this little scenario out. Listen to this. Picture it this way. You are tired and you're hungry. And you're heading home from a long day at work. I mean, you are really tired and really hungry. It is a rainy night out and along the road you see a car broken down. You get the sense, the prompting from the Holy Spirit that you should pull over. You pull over and approach the car and find a young mother with a baby and a toddler. You can tell she is having serious problems by the tears she has been crying. She rolls down the window as if herself prompted by the Holy Spirit. You greet her with a smile and a question. Can you use any help? Supposing she has a phone and has already dialed her help in, you are not expecting much in the way of a reply. Surprisingly, though, she begins to express her need and to share her story. She was fearful of her boyfriend and took off with her kids. She wasn't sure where she was going, had little money and no real family to turn to. To make matters worse, her car had just broken down and she did not know what to do or where to turn. Now, mind you, you are what? Tired and hungry. But you call a tow truck for her car, take her and her kids into your car, and drive them to your house. You spend the night listening to her story, feeding her kids and her kids, uh, feeding her and her kids, and sharing counsel and advice that comes from the prompting of the Holy Spirit. 
Before you know it, this young, scared mother is sitting at your dinner table, responding to the gospel and receiving Christ as her savior. In fact, you can tell immediately the change on her face as she glows with the newfound reality of Christ and his life. You find them a place to rest for the night, leaving the long-term details for the next morning. As you climb in bed yourself later than usual, it strikes you that, you know what? You never even fed yourself. And if you're honest, you're not as tired as you were when you were heading home from work. That's not a true story, but it is a true story. For people who surrender themselves to the Holy Spirit, it's, it's true that God uses us in ways just like that. It's Jesus having a conversation at a well with a, with a woman. It is Jesus feeding 5,000 people and ministering to them out of the middle of nowhere when he's tired and hungry. And there is something invigorating about loving your neighbor, about serving those around you. I mean, really loving your neighbor and really serving them. The thing is, that is how the gospel works. You know, the gospel is more satisfying than the happiest meal you can ever buy. I'm just telling you, you can. And we need to know that. So when we are tired, we still have enough. We have enough to love our neighbor. Here's the second lesson. The key to having enough is intimate time with the Father. One of the reasons Jesus invites the disciples and says, let's get away alone, is he knows they need some downtime. They need some time to just get alone with the Father and be fed. Now, in this instance, that downtime gets kind of shortchanged, and so they aren't able to, to get that downtime. But I want you to know immediately what happens after he does this miracle and as, after the day winds down. Look at immediately what happens. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And so Jesus gets alone with the Father. Think of it this way. Jesus had just spent his humanity teaching and healing and feeding the crowd along with the whole time. He's also, what? He's discipling the disciples. He's teaching the disciples. He's building into their life. He spends all of his humanity and then he goes to refuel with the Father. He gets a way to refuel, to recharge, to prepare for what's next. And the reality is, this is Jesus' life. He does this all the time. To live the Christ life, if you follow his model, he spent intimate time with the Father. He got away to spend time with the Lord. He just, it, it was just imperative. It was vital to his ministry. Note here as well, it tells us in the passage that Jesus had compassion. I want you to think about this, that Jesus having compassion on the crowd and ministering in the moment is the evidence of the Holy Spirit. You see, we get away from with the Father, with intimate time with the Father and stay connected to the Father and then the Holy Spirit leads us into those open doors. The Holy Spirit tells us when we're to love our neighbor. Holy Spirit tells us when we're supposed to stop. Like the story I told you, the woman felt prompted to stop and she felt prompted to share and she felt prompted to take them to her house. And You know, we can't meet every need. We can't, if, if everyone in the world is our neighbor, I can't love everybody in the world, No. And even Jesus didn't when he was on earth. But he met the woman at the well and he, met, he dealt with these 5,000 and, and the people that God sent him to, he loved his neighbor. And so just the compassion in the ministry here shows us that he was connected to the Father. Summed up the key to the Christ life, the key to loving our neighbor 
even when we are tired, is intimate time with the Father. That's, that's the key. The key. Number three, third lesson. In Christ, we have more than we realize. When it comes to living the life we've been called to live, when it comes to living the Christ life and loving our neighbor as ourselves, we have to understand that we have more than we realize. And this is one of the central messages of this story. Again, we said that Jesus was motivated by the compassion that he had. He saw the people as sheep without shepherd, without a shepherd. They were lost. They were wandering. They didn't have any purpose in their life, no meaning, no direction. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to guess the disciples, when they saw the crowds, they didn't see their neighbor. (laughs) I don't think they saw what Jesus saw. You know, I think they saw a big burden. It's like, oh, we were supposed to go get something to eat. (laughs) We were supposed to rest. See, Jesus saw sheep without a shepherd, and I think the disciples maybe saw um, um, vultures who wanted to be fed, something like that. They, They didn't see the same thing there. You go to the Gospel of John. He adds another layer to the story. Each, each, uh, each Gospel writer shares the story. Listen to what John shares about the story in, in verses five and seven here. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward them, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a a little. So Philip here says, we don't have enough. And the reality is they have more than enough. And notice here that he's testing Philip. He's gonna test Philip. Now, Philip kind of misses Jesus. Basically, he says it would take about a year's worth of labor to feed all these people. We don't have the money. We don't have the time. We don't have the, we don't have the, we don't have the manpower to feed 5,000. There's 12 of us. How are we gonna feed 5,000 people? We just don't have enough. Now, here's the thing to, to understand that where the test might come in. So John is the one who says he was tested. Note this about John. John is the one who in John chapter one tells us that Jesus called Philip to be his disciple at the very end of chapter one. He calls Philip. And then the very next thing in chapter two, the Bible tells us that Jesus took Philip and the disciples where? To a wedding. And what did Jesus do at that wedding? Remember what he did at that wedding? He took the water and he magnified the water and multiplied the water and fed all the wedding guests the best wine they had the whole day. I mean, he saved the best wine till last. And so they have seen Jesus do things like this in the past. And so he says, well, where can we get enough? You know, and he's testing him to see. He knew what he was gonna do. He knew he was gonna feed all 5,000 of these. He wanted to know, really, where are my disciples? Six chapters removed, and now he is testing his disciples. Um, and he says this then in verse 37 and 38. Notice what he says. He, he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. So he encourages, so the, the, the disciples come and encourage Jesus to break up the meeting because you know what? These people, they need to eat. Right? They have to eat. It's late in the day. Now, here's the question. Is anybody keeping these people here? <laughs> Can't they just, if they're hungry, say, hey, you know, we're hungry. We're going to go get something to eat. 
I don't think, you know what I, who, you know who I think's hungry? I think the disciples are hungry. Because like, hey, you know, it's been a long day. We were supposed to eat before we started. You know, let's break this thing up and let's go eat. I don't think they're loving their neighbor. I think their focus pretty much is on themselves. So Jesus says, well, hey, if you're so concerned about feeding them, you feed them. <laughs> Can you imagine if you're the disciples and you're there and he says, you feed them. And they're like, uh, what, what, what'd you say? Do what? How, how would we feed them? You know, it's kind of kind of interesting. What me? I can't do that. I'm not that significant. I'm not that gifted. I'm not that talented. I'm not that capable. I'm not that resourceful. How can I feed them? In fact, it's really interesting. You know how often we often focus on what we don't have and not what we do have, right? We get faced with a, a ministry opportunity and we're focused on what we don't have and not what we do have. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough energy. We don't have enough resources. We don't have enough. You fill in the blank. We don't have enough. But wait a minute. We have the one who can magnify and multiply anything we put in his hands. We wouldn't be in this building today if he hadn't magnified and multiplied what we put in his hands. So he tests the disciples. And and what is this test? Well, I think on some level the test is a test of their faith, but I think it's more than that. I think he's more than just testing their faith. I think he's actually maybe testing their spiritual vision. He's testing, where's your vision at? What are you looking at? Are you looking at the crowds? Are you looking at the five loaves and two fish? Are you looking at the Father? Are you looking at yourself? Where's your vision? See, for Jesus, he had compassion on the people. Why? Because he had his vision on the Father and the Holy Spirit, and God directed him in what transpires here. So where is their vision? Do they see in this moment Jesus? And I was thinking about this too. You know, I think one of the keys to faith, really think about it, one of the keys to faith is just seeing Christ. It's just seeing Jesus. It's just seeing God. We talk about uh, struggling to have faith. Well, if you just see the one who can magnify and multiply whatever you put in his hands, hey, you know what? Faith isn't that, that faith's not that hard. And so, where is our vision? And that goes back again to having that intimate time with the Father. I think the disciples' eyes were on themselves. They were hungry. They had limited resources. They didn't have enough. The thing is, if they had just seen Jesus, they would have known that they had enough. They looked at the two fish and five loaves and thought that was quite insignificant, but not in the hands of the one who can magnify and multiply whatever we put into his hands. The invitation then is for us to surrender our lives, our will, and our resources. That's it. Anything we place in the hands of God can be magnified and multiplied. We just have to surrender it to him and he can do more with it than we can. That's just the reality. That's just the beautiful reality. We have more than enough. Now, there's another parallel here. You think about about having more than enough. Colossians 2, 6, and 7 tells us this. Therefore, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue uh, to live in him, rooted and build up in him, established in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception which are based on human tradition and the spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. 
for in Christ all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form and you have been made complete in Christ who is the head over every ruler and authority. You think about having more than enough the spiritual application in this whole thing is that we have Christ and because we have Christ in the Christ life we have more than enough and we are complete in Christ. What does that mean when it says we are complete in Christ? I think there are really two ways that we can kind of kind of look at that idea of being complete in Christ. There's a very a common uh, illustration that has been shared many times it is the god-shaped hole in our heart basically it says we're all created and we got this vacuum in our heart this god-shaped vacuum and that only god can fill that vacuum and people today go out and they try to fill it with money and with fame and with their career or they fill it with relationships or they fill it with alcohol or drugs or sex or whatever they feel that and there's only one thing that can fill that god-shaped vacuum and that is christ how many have heard that illustration before? Right? Well, if you've heard that illustration before and thought that's a pretty good illustration, just forget it. It's a terrible illustration. Because that's not what the Bible means when the Bible says you are complete in Christ. That kind of basically says, well, if I've got my, you know, if I've got some good relationships and I've got my mental faculties and I got my physical health and my emotional well-being. All I need is Christ. I just have this little spot in my life that my spiritual life is missing. And if I just find that, my puzzle's complete and I'm complete because of Christ. He's what's missing. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible says you are complete in Christ and it's talking about something different. It's talking about Christ is my life. He is my everything. I don't need anything else. He is my everything. And, and, and that's a scary place to go when you put that much stock and that much weight and find everything about yourself in Christ. But that's the reality. That is really what the Bible tells us. The verse says that you have been made complete, past tense. When you come to Christ, you have been made complete. He did all the work, he is my salvation, he is my life. What happens then, understand, catch this, is that my relationships, my emotional well-being, my physical vitality, my mental stability, all of those things, they don't complete me. They're all the blessings in my life. They're the 10,000 blessings. They're the icing on the cake. This is why the Apostle Paul understood this. He could sit in a prison cell and he could write the Bible and he was cold, and he was tired, and he was hungry. He was lonely, but he was complete in Christ. And he didn't need anything else to be complete. And he could sit in that jail cell and write us the most amazing books of the Bible. Here's three things. When you find your completeness in Christ, and you understand it in that way, that he is your life, here's what happens. Christ is my life, my everything means I will not look to sin to satisfy me. I won't look to any substance. I won't look to any drug. I won't look to anything that just breaks the law of God to satisfy myself. Here's the second thing. I will see the blessings in my life. I will see the blessings in my life as blessings, as the blessings that they are. None of those things complete me. I've struggled with this for a long time. We often talk about how our spouse completes us, right? Right? And I always wrestled with that because I thought, well, but there are people that aren't married and so, you know, how does that fit in? Let me tell you, your spouse doesn't complete you. You are complete in Christ. Your spouse is a blessing. It's the icing on the cake. Yes, they're your help meet. Yes, there's other ways to look at it, but I don't think we should say that our spouse completes us. Christ 
completes us. That is the truth. And then finally, here's the third thing. When Christ is my life and he's my everything, I find it much easier to surrender the blessings in my life. All those things that are blessings, it's so much easier to just surrender them to God. I can just surrender my lunch to God at any moment because I know God can magnify it and multiply it. I'm more thankful for the smallest blessings I have and more ready and more willing to, share, to, to surrender them if God needs them. Why is it so much easier to surrender my blessings? Because you know what? I don't need them. They don't complete me. Christ completes me. I don't need those things. They're blessings. I'm complete in Christ, and so if I have to surrender this or that or the next thing, whether it's a relationship or it's a resource or whatever it might be, I can surrender it very easily. Hmm. We have more than we realize. When we have Christ, we are complete. We don't need anything else. And that's the honest truth. And then finally, last lesson. The Christ life is the bread of life. And if you really want to understand this story and understand why Jesus told this story, you just got to, like always, you got to find the gospel. Look for the gospel in every story of the Bible. If you look, you will find the gospel. And the Christ life is the bread of life. And it's not hard to find the gospel in this story because here's what happens. So Jesus got away into the mountain, right? Spent some time with the Father and the next day he hooks up with the disciples again. Well, actually, they hooked up that night. That night is when... The storm is on the water and he comes walking on the water and freaks all the disciples out. And the next day anyway, they're over at the other side of the lake and all the people that he fed, they show up again. There come the vultures. <laughs> no, here, here come the sheep that really need a shepherd. But anyway, they show up and Jesus is going to preach one of his most powerful and one of his most controversial messages on the other side of the lake the next day. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Excuse me. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal then they said to him what must we do to be doing the works of god jesus answered them this is the work of god that you believe in him whom he has sent just catch that for a minute you know so what's the work of god how do we earn our salvation what's the work of god belief yeah we don't do anything he, he does all the work i just love that this is the work of god that you believe in him you don't got to work for it you just believe so they said to him then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And here it is. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. See, Jesus knows their heart at this point. He knows that their heart is just not tender to him. He knows that really they're not interested in physical food. They're not interested in, or interested in spiritual food. They're interested in the physical food. They just want him to be their leader because you know what? He fed them a great lunch. Boy, if you can feed us like that every day, you can be our king. 
<laughs> we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll bow down to you if you can give us meals like that all the time. That's pretty cool. And yet Jesus is here for far more. He's here for the spiritual. And so Jesus fed the people not to meet a physical need, but to introduce a spiritual need. He could have sent them home to, to eat a meal. But no, he wanted to introduce a spiritual need and he knew that the next day probably this would arrive. He'd have the opportunity to use this to teach them this incredible sermon. I believe he had compassion on the people. He fed them. I think he fed them to test the disciples. I think he fed them to, to grow the disciples. But I think he also fed them because there was a spiritual need he was going to introduce to them. Also, Jesus said he was the bread of life. He was broken to feed us. And there's a great parallel here to the gospel as he took that bread and broke that bread and broke it and broke it and broke it. And, and he, as, as he kept breaking it, there was enough to feed all of those people. 15, 20,000. And if there had been 150,000 there, there would have been enough. He just could have breaking the bread. And there is enough of Christ to save every single person in the world. He died on the cross, forgave everybody, offered his life to everybody, offers redemption to everybody. Some people don't receive it. Some people reject it. There is enough. The story is a great understanding of how there is enough of Christ to save every single person. God didn't pick and choose who'd get saved. He didn't only decide to save some people. He said, my life is for everybody who will come and eat. And that's what he's saying to them the next day. Hey, you, you want to eat like this all the time? Yeah, you just come to me. You feed on me. I say this is one of his most controversial sermons because this is the sermon where he says you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And that's, that, that would be pretty, you know, this side of the cross, we look at that and think, oh yeah, we understand that. and We, we kind of illustrate that in communion. We understand that's a, not a literal eating, that's a spiritual thing. But that day, many people stopped following him. Not as the 12, of course. Many stopped following him because that was just like, what did you say? Who are we following here? Okay, this is a little bit too much for me. And they stopped following him. To live the life I was called to live is to give myself away. Just as Christ broke himself and fed the masses and the multitudes, we likewise can give our lives away. We can break ourselves and we can feed all of those around me I can and realize this meal satisfied the people it said that they were satisfied when they were done eating and the reality is is the bread of life will truly satisfy us like nothing else and there are so many people that just don't know Christ and just they just don't understand it they've just never been really introduced to it what does it mean to give myself away it means to love my neighbor when it is hard and let me tell you there are some people that are really hard to love it is true there are some people that it is desperately hard to love some people you might have heard the story about a woman and her husband who came to a pastor and said we're going to get a divorce but we want to come to make sure you approve of it there are people who come to the pastor hoping that when they say there is no feeling left in their marriage the pastor will say well if there's no feeling left then the only thing you can do is split. Instead, the pastor says to the husband, well, you're supposed to love your, your, your wife as Christ loved the church. Can you do that? And he says, well, I can't do that. And he says, well, okay. Well, the Bible says you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. Can you do that? He says, oh, I can't do that. He says, okay, start at an easier level. Bible says to love your enemies. <laughs> so, start there. Love your enemies. Some people are hard to love. Some people take a lot of patience and a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of mercy, a lot of strength. Some people are hard to love, right? 
There are people like that. We know people like that. We have more than enough to love our neighbor even when it is hard. Not just talk about loving them. Not just saying, you can come to my country and live next door to me. It's like, no, I'll really love you. I'll really show you Christ. I will really give of myself for you. And then the second way that we give ourselves away, there it is, Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies. But here, second way we give ourselves away is to feed my neighbor when they are hungry. To feed my neighbor when they are hungry. Just like Jesus fed the 5,000, we have the bread of life. We need to feed our neighbor. And I was reminded of these verses. It just struck me as I thought about this. You know, in a very real way, as I love my neighbor, as I care for them, as I serve them, as I give to them, I need to know that I have the bread of life and I can give myself away. And Matthew 25, remember this passage? Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they asked him, well, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or a sick in prison and we did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. There is a sense where we're to love God with all we have and how do we love God with all we have? By loving our neighbor as ourself, by feeding them when they're hungry, by giving of ourselves. We have the bread of life and we need to be so aware of that. And there's just one last thing here that we need to know then because when they get done with this miracle, they they gather up 12 basketfuls left of food. And here's the thing, the 12 baskets of leftovers prove that we have more than enough. We have more than enough. We can, we can give and we can give. If we spend time with the Father and we get recharged, we have enough for the life we are called to live for our family and for ourselves and for our responsibilities and our challenges and our battles. But we also have enough to love our neighbor and to help our neighbor with his challenges and to help our neighbor fight his battles. That's the truth. Sometimes we are tired before we even begin. We have enough even when we're tired. The key to unlocking the Christ life, the key to having enough is intimate time with the Father. And in Christ we have more than we realize because we are complete in Christ and we need nothing else. And finally the Christ life is the bread of life. We have the bread of life. And the thing is, Jesus shows us that it is satisfying and invigorating when we love our neighbor and when we give ourselves away. Let me leave you with this last thing here. Somewhat uh, well-known pastor shares this story. I walked down Chestnut Street in Philadelphia. There was a filthy bum covered with soot from head to toe. He had a huge beard. I'll never forget the beard. It was a gigantic beard with rotted food stuck in it. He held a cup of McDonald's coffee and mumbled as he walked along the street. He spotted me and said, Hey, mister, you want some of my coffee? I knew I should take some to be nice, and I did. I gave it back to him and said, you're being pretty generous giving away your coffee this morning. What's gotten into you that you're giving away your coffee all of a sudden? He said, well, the coffee was especially delicious this morning, and I figured if God gives you something good, you ought to share it with people. I figured this is the perfect setup. I said, is there anything I can give you in return? I'm sure he's going to hit me up for $5. He said, yeah, you can give me a hug. <laughs> I was hoping for the $5. He put his arms around me. I put my arms around him and I realized something. He wasn't going to let me go. 
He was holding on to me. Here I am, an establishment guy, and this bum is hanging on to me. He's hugging me. He's not going to let me go. People are passing down the street. They're staring at me. I'm embarrassed, but little by little, my embarrassment turned to awe. I heard a voice echoing down the corridors of time saying, I was hungry. Did you feed me? I was naked. Did you clothe me? I was sick. Did you care for me? I was a bum you met on Chestnut Street. Did you hug me? For if you did it until the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. And if you failed to do it until the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you failed to do it unto me. We have enough to hug anybody, even our enemies. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we have enough. And I don't know what part of this message today speaks to us personally. But each one of us can probably find a component in here that really speaks to us and I'm just struck by the fact that I am complete in Christ and I need nothing else. And I pray we would all realize that. And God, I want to pray a special prayer right now. Compelled to pray just over everybody in this room. Every life here, every family represented. And Lord, I just want to pray that you would open our hearts and open our eyes. That we would see you, first of all, we would see the Father and that as we see the Father and as we hear from the Holy Spirit and as we see Christ in us, that you would help us see around us then everybody we come in contact with. Whoever needs us to be a neighbor to them, that we wouldn't just talk about it, but we would really reach out and we would serve and we would care and we would give of ourselves and just show us what that looks like even this week. And when we think we don't have enough, help us realize that we have enough if we have you. And may you magnify magnify and multiply everything we put in your hands this week for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.